the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, that wasn't the right way to start out. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'd like to begin with a hearty cough. Well, today is a big day for uh, well, at least some of us. Today happens to be the birthday of baby James Blend. It was 43 years ago today that the doctor lifted the little baby, slapped him on his backside, and he hasn't stopped making noises ever since. Now, on behalf of the staff, your coworkers here at KPDQ, we want to wish you a happy birthday. And I have to paint a picture for our listeners who can't see what I see as I'm facing James. There's a glass window between us. And in the room are several of our coworkers. There's a cake with candles. And we want to wish you a happy birthday. Now, if I was really into it, I would sing happy birthday, but I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. You have to imagine a rousing chorus of happy birthday, which, by the way, they may want to sing to you. But I am just going to say <laughs> happy birthday on this, your 43rd. Now, how many years have you been here, James, causing trouble of various kinds? Many, many, many. Many, many. But how many years have you been here at the station? Uh, started here in 1995. 95. You were what, in your 20s then? I was 20. I remember you at that time, this young, wide-eyed kid. You were unmarried at the time. I don't think you were dating anyone. It was so fun to impose myself into various highlights of your life when you were dating and your marriage and you know having your child and everything. So it's been very fun for me to be a part of all of that. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful 43rd birthday. And this will be your best year ever. So congratulations. Thank you. I just feel this tremendous sensation of deja vu. <laughs> By the way, that is a gluten-free cake. Oh, yum. So you can uh, you can have some as well as everyone else in the studio. And if someone just feels like they'd like to bring me a little sliver, <laughs> feel free. All right. Well, enough of that. <laughs> You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Tuesday afternoon. That happens to also be James' birthday. But there are other things of lesser importance that are also happening. We want to bring you up to date on some of them. Uh, by the way, we're going to talk with Adam Davis, who is the author of Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement. Um, and uh, Adam uh, Davis is a former police officer himself. He's a husband, father, small business owner, writer, he lives in uh, South Alabama with his family and has provided this resource, having walked through these uh, sometimes troubled waters himself, uh, to provide a resource for uh, other law enforcement officers so that they know that they always have backup, whatever shift they're working or whatever work they're doing, that God is with them, God is for them, and they can look to his word for wisdom and guidance uh, throughout that process. So he's going to join us um, later this hour. Then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. You might have uh, seen or heard Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He gave Iran's government an ultimatum and its people. He gave them an assurance on Monday. He laid out the president's um, agenda for pulling out of the or after pulling out of the 2015 nuclear deal with the Islamist regime. 
Some pretty strong words. We're going to try to analyze what they mean moving forward. First, a look at some of the developing stories of the day. A group of congressional Republicans want a second special counsel to look into the decision to end the investigation into Hillary Clinton's personal email server, alleged FISA abuse by the FBI and Justice Department, and the progress of the Russia investigation under Robert Mueller. Now, of course, there's some pushback on that. But that's a developing story. Also, a top FBI and Justice Department officials, they've agreed to meet with congressional leaders and White House Chief of Staff John Kelly to review highly classified information in the Russia investigation. The White House announced on Monday. Now, the Democrats are saying, look, this needs to be a bipartisan deal. Unless we're there, this is not on the up and up. Senate, and I would agree they should probably be there. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley has requested Justice Department documents on communications between former Associate Deputy Attorney General Bruce Orr and British spy Christopher Steele on the Trump Russia dossier. Now, the truth is a day is coming when none of this will be meaningful at all. We're not going to be talking about it. It's not going to be thought about. It's going to be behind us. I'm looking forward to that day. But for today, these are still developing stories. President Trump's going to meet with South Korean or rather did meet with South Korean President Moon Jae-in at the White House today in preparation for his highly anticipated June 12th summit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Now, part of the fascination of this meeting was the two of them got along quite well. The South Korean uh, president was very complimentary of the, pre- the president of the United States as being instrumental in uh, pr- uh, possibly resolving issues that have existed between the North and the South for decades. Um, but the president also said in rather uh, casual remarks following that press conference that it's entirely possible that this won't happen at all or that it may be postponed. We'll tell you more about that in uh, just a bit. And voters will choose uh, nominees and primaries in Arkansas, in Georgia, Kentucky and Texas uh, today. And of course, all of this points to the midterm elections that will determine which uh, political party, the Democrats or the Republicans, will maintain or regain control of one or the other chamber. That's a pretty big deal in Washington because that means the reins of power may shift or they may stay as they are. Well, as I mentioned, a group of congressional Republicans plan to introduce a resolution calling for the appointment of a second special counsel to investigate the misconduct alleged misconduct at the FBI and Justice Department. The resolution is backed by Representative Mark Meadows and the chairman of the conservative House Freedom Caucus, as well as uh, two of the group's co-founders, Representative Jim Jordan and Representative Ron DeSantis. Uh, It's been learned the uh, 12-page resolution will ask a second special counsel to probe matters related to three topics, the ending of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's personal email server, the progress of the Trump-Russia investigation from its origins through the appointment of Robert Mueller, a special counsel and abuses of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA court during the warrant application process. Um, one of uh, Hillary Clinton's pollsters has blasted Mueller's probe, saying that it must be stopped now. While uh, Dershowitz says a special counsel is the worst way of getting at the truth. And historically, we've certainly seen that example. Well, turning up the heat on the Russia probe, the White House announced uh, that top FBI and Justice Department officials have agreed to meet with congressional leaders to review highly classified information in that investigation. The lawmakers have been uh, seeking on the handling of that probe. The agreement came after the president demanded that the Justice Department investigate whether the FBI infiltrated his presidential campaign. It's not clear exactly what members are going to be allowed to review or if the Justice Department will be providing any documents to Congress. The White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that Trump's chief of staff, John Kelly, is going to broker that meeting between congressional leaders and the FBI, the Justice Department and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. She said the 
officials will review highly classified and other information they have requested, but did not provide additional details. In other news, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee asked the Justice Department today, or rather Monday, to turn over communications between former Associate Deputy Attorney General Bruce Orr, British spy Christopher Steele, and others about the infamous anti-Trump dossier. In a letter to the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, uh, Senator Chuck Grassley requested uh, Orr's emails, phone logs, written uh, notes, text messages. Grassley also asked the Justice Department to arrange for Orr to be interviewed by the committee staff. Grassley wrote that he wants to know whether Orr continued to pass information from Steele to others at the FBI after the Bureau terminated the former MI6 man as a source for disclosing his relationship with the FBI to the media. And as I mentioned, the president met with South Korean President Moo Jae-in as part of his uh, preparation for the upcoming meeting with the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, if in fact it happens. Moon's government delivered the initial invitation from Kim for a meeting in South Korea has been uh, pushing the U.S. toward a peaceful resolution to the nuclear crisis. North Korea threw a potential wrench in the plans last week, threatening to cancel over concerns about the U.S. push to see the complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula, which wasn't news, but... Something happened. In fact, the president made reference to the unexpected meeting with Kim Jong-un and uh, the Chinese leader uh, and that somehow having changed the tenor of their conversation. So we'll see. And four states cast ballots today in the 2018 midterm elections as they're taking shape. Voters in Arkansas and Georgia, Kentucky, they took uh, primaries. Texas is settling several primary runoffs after their first round of voting in March. And again, this all points to the midterm elections. And uh, on this day in 1998, the federal judge ruled that Secret Service agents could be compelled to testify before the grand jury in the Monica Lewinsky investigation. And on this day in 1960, an earthquake of magnitude 9.5, the strongest ever measured, strikes southern Chile, claiming some 1,655 lives. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Adam Davis, a former police officer and the author of Behind the Badge 365 Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement. Well, a new research paper suggests that authoritarian regimes in countries like China, Russia and North Korea are manipulating their gross domestic product, perhaps by as much as 15 to 30 percent in any one year. Well, the paper was written by University of Chicago's Luis Martinez. It was discovered that GDP is likely to be inflated even more than there was um, there's uh, is a strong incentive to do so. There's more of an incentive now, such as right before elections or following a year of weaker than expected growth. Well, the uh, gradient is larger when there is a stronger incentive to exaggerate economic performance, years of low growth, for example, before elections and so on. Uh, he writes, the results indicate that yearly GDP growth rates are inflated by a factor of between 1.15 and 1.3 in the most authoritarian regimes. Well, he used satellite imagery that tracks nighttime lights and the level at which they change within countries over time. In an email to the Washington Post, he said the paper tries to look at whether the uh, checks and balances that democracy is supposed to provide and is enough to constrain government's desire to manipulate information, or more specifically, their desire to exaggerate how well the economy is doing. 
He told the newspaper that a 10% increase in nighttime lights is the equivalent of a 2.4% increase in GDP in democracies such as the U.S., Canada, Western Europe. However, a 10% increase in nighttime lights in authoritarian countries resulted in a GDP increase anywhere from 29 to 3.4%, significantly higher than what's seen in free and open democracies. Well, these findings indicate that the main result about democracy and autocracy is indeed driven by the differences in political institutions that characterize these regimes. Um, GDP defined as a monetary measure of the market value of the final goods and services produced in a period of time is a self-reported number which is prone to manipulation, he went on to say. In 2017, China's self-reported GDP rose 6.9% year over year. According to the International Monetary Fund, China has the second largest economy in the country, uh, rather by country in the world at just over $12 trillion. The U.S. is still the largest at $19.39 trillion. Collectively, the European Union is larger than China at $17.31 trillion. That isn't the first time there have been uh, accusations that China has altered its GDP. In fact, <clears throat> the country itself has previously admitted to fudging the numbers. In 2015, the Global Times, an English-language Chinese newspaper, wrote that the inflated statistics in certain provinces were causing a problem for local economies. And in 2016, the issue cropped up again when the director of the National Bureau of Statistics wrote in a column for Communist Party agent to the People's Daily that some data was false, according to the Financial Times. Currently, some local statistics are falsified and fraud and deception happen from time to time in violation of statistics laws and regulations. He wrote in an op-ed, which has since been taken down. Well, in 2017, in one uh, provenance, uh, one particular province, uh, it was admitted that data had been manipulated from 2011 to 2014, but didn't say by how much, according to the Financial Times. And it goes on from there, um, but gives a distorted picture of the wealth of uh, these countries in particular. He makes that point. Well, revelations that an FBI informant was in contact with members of the Trump campaign during the 2016 presidential election have opened the door to a cascade of new details about these communications. And that's emboldened Republican demands for full accounting, as I mentioned earlier. Well, the latest detail emerged when former Trump campaign advisor Michael Caputo revealed uh, that there might be at least two informants saying he, too, was approached. Let me tell you something that I know for a fact, Caputo said on the Ingram Angle program. This informant, this person that they tried to plant into the campaign, he's not the only person who came to the campaign, and the FBI is not the only Obama agency who came to the campaign either. He added, I know because they came to me, and I'm looking uh, for clearance for my attorney to reveal this to the public. This is just the beginning. Well, he's revealed something by saying at least that much. He claimed that when the truth comes out, Director Clapper and the rest of them will be wearing some orange suits, referring to former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper. Now, is that an overstatement or not? We'll see. Well, it's been confirmed that the original reported informant was in communication with at least three campaign officials. The informant spoke with Trump campaign advisor Sam Clovis, in addition to Carter Page and foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos. The source also said that Clovis met with the informant, whom he knew to be a professor and had a conversation related to China, that Russia did not come up. Clovis reviewed, or rather received, a follow-up email from that individual in the months before the election with research material on China and another email on the day after the election congratulating the campaign. Well, the new revelation has uh, renewed calls for a second special counsel, which we spoke of earlier, and uh, 
Representatives um, Lee Zeldin, Ron DeSantis, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, and other members of Congress are expected to announce that resolution detailing the misconduct that is now at least trickling out drip by drip. Well, ever since she lost 2016 election, Hillary Clinton has repeatedly blamed her defeat on the FBI's decision to reopen the probe into her email user after messages were found on the laptop of confidant Uma Abedin's estranged husband. But now that laptop and those emails are back in the spotlight, this time causing problems for FBI leaders as part of a forthcoming inspector general report. The probe is expected to fault bureau officials for sitting on those emails in the first place. The finding underscores how the laptop continues to play a recurring part in the Clinton case saga, haunting everyone from the Democratic nominee to the FBI officials who examined it. This, as Abedin herself hit the uh, social circuit, she was seen in recent uh, weeks living it up at uh, glitzy events, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art Gala and a bash at the home of Vogue boss Anna Wintour. Meanwhile, she's um, leaving or has left her husband, ex-representative Anthony Weiner, who is serving a 21-month prison sentence for, well, you know what. It was the probe into uh, those messages that led the agents to uncover the laptop in the fall of 2016, discovering Clinton emails that she had forwarded to her husband. Then FBI Director James Comey notified Congress in last October, in late October, I should say, that he was uh, revising the probe less than two weeks before the election, having announced in July that he would not recommend charges over Clinton's use of a private email server when she served as Secretary of State. And so it um, it continues on that front uh, as well. Meanwhile, Paul Ryan is facing renewed Republican pressure to promptly step down as House Speaker after last week's failure to pass a massive farm bill with the disagreements on immigration. The Wisconsin Republican announced in April that he wouldn't seek re-election in the fall, but intended to remain as Speaker through his current term. He was immediately beset by speculation that he would become a lame duck leader and face a behind-the-scenes power struggle to replace him. And in, in essence, that's sort of what's happening. Assurances from his top two lieutenants, uh, Major Leader, Majority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy and Whip Steve Scalise, uh, that the full support Ryan largely uh, uh, quieted the, the chatter at the time. He, they were going to support him. But after Ryan was unable to muscle the GOP-sponsored farm bill through the House last Friday and faced an uprising in the ranks over immigration, the two were linked, pressure has mounted anew for him to surrender his speakership before the midterm congressional uh, races are in full swing. White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney acknowledged this past weekend that he talked with uh, McCarthy about Ryan's situation, bringing the um, internal debate into public view. He said he's talked with Kevin about the uh, privacy, but not as much publicly. Um, Mulvaney suggested an early speakership vote would also force Democrats to vote for or against their leader, Nancy Pelosi, as an added benefit because she is highly unpopular among many Democrats. 29 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Adam Davis. His book, Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement. He knows about it because he has been a law enforcement officer. We'll talk with him about that and this tremendous resource when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. <clears throat> 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, an intense manhunt involving aircraft and trained dogs came to an end today after a female officer was killed in a Baltimore suburb and four teenage suspects who were involved in burglaries in the area were arrested in connection with that slaying. 
The nearly four-year veteran of the force, identified by authorities as Amy Caprio, was responding to a suspicious vehicle call on Monday in the community of Perry Hall when Baltimore County Police Corporal Sean Vincent said she encountered the suspects and was critically injured. Baltimore County Police Chief Terrence Sheridan said at a news conference the fallen officer was wearing body camera and that the footage will be reviewed as part of that investigation. He added that Americans are seeing something in this country we've never seen before. Officers who have died at the hands of gunshots is up. This is a bad time in the United States for law enforcement, he went on to say. Since the start of 2018, at least 36 law enforcement officers across the U.S. have died while on duty while 24 of the deaths caused by gunfire. Roughly 135 police officers died in 2016, making it the deadliest year for police officers in at least five years. And while there are fewer, uh, rather were fewer deaths in 2017, the numbers weren't much better. A total of 129 officers died last year and 46 of those caused by gunfire. And then, of course, there are police officers who are disrespected, refuse service and all kinds of circumstances undermining the kind of service that they have committed themselves to providing in our community. They are respected by some, feared by others. Law enforcement face daily pressures and dangers that are uncommon to other professions. Behind the badge is a devotional we're going to be talking about, and it provides daily spiritual nourishment that will encourage uh, law enforcement, both professionally and personally. Filled with personal stories, relevant scriptures, practical prayers, this short devotional focuses on themes such as peace and integrity, strength, family protection, divine declarations that will inspire and strengthen those who serve. My guest is Adam Davis. During his time as a police officer, he served in several different divisions, including hostage negotiations and criminal investigations before retiring and becoming a business owner and writer. He's the author of Spirit and Truth, 52 Encouraging Messages for America's Law Enforcement. He and his wife, Amber, reside in southeast Alabama with their three children and two dogs. He joins us today to talk about the resource he has written for law enforcement, Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotions for law enforcement. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgie, thank you so much for having me on. I always have to include that we have the two dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get those important details in there. That's right. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. Well, I appreciate that you have provided a resource for first responders, in this case, law enforcement, that will help to um, encourage them in the very difficult work that they do. Oh, my goodness. You know, uh, never before have we seen times like what we're living in now. And, uh, you know, uh, we could sit down and analyze the reasons why, but at the end of the day, it's a heart issue. Um, And, you know, I remember when I wrote my very first book that was self-published, I felt like all I was doing was complaining about what was going on. And, and uh, nobody was really, it, it, in my in my mind, it didn't seem like anybody was speaking up uh, to speak any life or speak any good into law enforcement. And uh, so I wanted to take some steps to do that. And uh, you know, the best way to do that for me is is found in um, faith in Christ and through the Word of God, and and to encourage them with practical, applicable uh, tips uh, that are found in His Word. <laughs> His mm-hmm. Word gives us life, and and so there's. Uh, 365 daily devotions and behind the badge, and it's it's not fluff, and it's not, you know, uh, you know, a lot of 
superficial stuff is really applicable. It's something that they can apply every single day of their life and everything from family to stress, integrity, whatever the issues are, it'll, it'll touch your life. So, uh, but never before have we faced times like we're seeing now in law enforcement, the dangers are uh, unprecedented. Well, let's, let's try to paint a picture for listeners who can't really imagine what it would be like to serve as a law enforcement officer, particularly at this time where dangers abound, mm-hmm. although that has always been the case. You served yeah, uh, yeah. for a number of years. Help us understand what it's like to kiss your wife goodbye, wave to your kids, uh, wave to the dogs, and set out for a day that you have no idea how that day. I sit behind a desk. I know pretty much what's going to happen. You have no idea what's that's about right. to happen when you put that uniform on and you don a badge. You know, and that's just one angle of danger that you deal with, uh, is is the unknown calls that you're going to face during the day. You, uh, the reality is that um, that it's a deadly profession. It's a dangerous job, and it requires uh, the ex- uh, the person who exemplifies what the meaning of true love is. Because they go and they give and serve, it's not because they're wanting to get rich. Because most of them don't. Uh, it's because they love, and so it's the same love that drove Christ to the cross. And so, these people, uh, men and women all across the country, they put on a uniform every day, and they get up and um, with all the stress that we all share, whether it's finances or parenting, relationships or whatever it is. I mean, those stresses are still there. But then they get to deal with the stresses of law enforcement, whether that's uh, administrative stress or uh, stress that's caused by some situation in society that because it does affect law enforcement across the board in some way or um, some other form of stress, you know, uh, but there's calls that they deal with. And those calls, it may be a, uh, a death of someone, whether it's a child or an adult. Um, it could be uh, a, da- a dangerous call. Just here today, 90 minutes from where I live, south of here, on the Gulf Coast, uh, a man fired at law enforcement, first responders. I mean, a barrage of gunfire. They had no idea when they got up this morning they were going to face that. No idea. And he had murdered somebody early in the day. Uh, that's that's hadn't happened in, in Bay County, Florida, in, in years. And so uh, they had no idea. That's making national news. But just like the young lady who was uh, a female officer that was killed uh, last night, I believe Mm -hmm. it was, they did the manhunt all night for, you know, uh, we've become so desensitized to death and to murder that that it doesn't bother us anymore. And that, that really should make us sick to our core. That should scare us. That should strike a fear in us that it's just another news headline. Uh, they have families. They want to go home and, and spend time with their families. They want to go and do enjoy their hobbies or uh, whatever the, whatever it is that's, that's part of their life. They got people that love them and care about, and that's what's really behind the badge. It's not the the job that they're doing. You know, sure, nobody likes to get a ticket, nobody likes to go to jail, but they do a lot more than that. That's just really a small portion of what they do. Um, and we don't ever hear about the good in most cases. We don't hear about the good they do. We just hear about the 1% or 2% who, who mess up. And when they mess up, boy, usually they mess up pretty bad. 
but we don't hear about the good these men and women do. And uh, so I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture that, that brings you uh, the stress that comes from numerous directions, numerous angles. It's not just the stress you and I have as, you know, I just call us private citizens just to kind of discern the difference there. But they have that. They have the family finances. Then they have what goes on on the job, on the streets, uh, whether it's a court case or stress from social media or whatever, whatever the case is. They come from numerous directions. Um, and, you know, and it's just really, it's really sad that people, uh, there's not a value of human life. Uh, like there, like there should be, like there used to be. Uh, it's like a video game, like somebody's trying to get another high score, you know. And it's it's very sad. It's very yeah, sad. Yeah. Now, in addition to the risk that we can only imagine that comes along with law enforcement, um, you point yeah. out that over seventy five percent of law enforcement officers are divorced. Thirty percent deal with alcohol abuse, and suicide is the number one cause of death in law enforcement. Finding peace um, in, in those statistics and the challenges of serving, as mm. so many do so well, um, a devotion like this can be very useful in putting things into perspective and looking to uh, the source of all wisdom to help you through some very challenging periods. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there, there's some different studies. Uh, there's some different studies out there that, that suggest that that percentage that, that I put in there may be inaccurate and you know uh but at, at the same time uh the number of divorces in law enforcement is is absurd i mean it, it it happens on a rampant basis and uh just like it is in the in our entire country but it happens a lot it happens too often and uh, substance abuse and you know i think that we've had oh my goodness um 51 52 total uh, line of duty deaths so far this year and 47 or 48 suicides. Mm. Um, and, you know, that when I say line of duty deaths, that's automobile accidents, that's um, uh, gunfire or assaults. Uh, and then you get into suicides and really nobody, you know, there's not a lot of, it's up to 59, 59 line of duty deaths this year from gunfire alone, 27. Um, and then 15 from automobile crashes. And, you know, that's, that's just not something they talk about a lot because let's face it, we, we don't want to address it. It's kind of like the, kind of like when you're a kid, you, you don't want to show your, your boo-boo to your mama. You want to keep it covered up as, as a boy, you cover it up, you know, and, and just pretend it's not there. Uh, if you hurt yourself and pretend it'll go away. Yeah. But it doesn't. And that's something we need to talk about. Absolutely. We're going to continue our conversation. We're talking with Adam Davis. He's for a former law enforcement, and he's the author of a 365-day devotional titled Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotionals for Law Enforcement. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, for those who serve in the most dangerous, unappreciated job there is, former law enforcement officer Adam Davis, skilled in criminal investigations, hostage negotiations, and homicide investigations, provides the answer to what our police force needs most. The devotional is titled Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement. Let's talk about the devotion. It's a, it, it's a, 
a small size. It's got a badge on the front with the title behind the badge. Describe it to our listeners and how you anticipate law enforcement officers using this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a beautifully designed book. Uh, you know, I'd like to say that I had one in front of me, but I can't keep any with me. <laughs> uh, I've, I've sold out of every one that I've had, and, and so I'm thankful. But it's uh, beautifully designed. It's imitation leather. It's perfect. It'll go in your back pocket. It'll mm-hmm. go in your cargo pants pocket. But the inside, the layout is really beautiful because each month has a different topic, and we break those topics down into bite-sized pieces. And so it takes you about two minutes to read each one each day, kind of sparks you on your daily journey and and kind of provokes that thought to dig into the Bible, pray a little bit, and and grow closer in your relationship with Christ. And uh, really, really unique devotion. It's not full of war stories. Most cops don't want to hear war stories. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's very practical, applicable, and it's, it's not preachy. You know, it's, I'm not preaching to you. Uh, it's like we're sitting down having a cup of coffee together. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, really, really good stuff. Now, what are some of the, um, the themes that are unique to law enforcement that you'll find in behind the badge? Well, you know, everything is sort of unique because you have to address it from that perspective. Um, one of the things we talk about is, in, I believe it's the month of May, it's all about integrity. So we dive into all the issues that we can fit into the month uh, of May and integrity. Uh, one month is all about family matters. But probably two of my favorite sections, if I had to pick a favorite, would be November in December. November is blessings for law enforcement. And then December is declarations over law enforcement. So where I've taken the promises of God's Word and just really speak them uh, over their lives of whoever's reading those uh, devotions in a way that's really going to plant a seed of hope and encouragement in their life. And uh, that's probably two of my favorite. I get that asked, you know, I get asked that a lot, but uh, that's sort of the layout. A couple of the themes there is is really understanding how his truth applies to you because it can it it can be easy to feel dirty or unworthy of God's love when, when you deal with violence all day, because let's just face it, they, they deal with ugly stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that can make you feel dirty. Like you, you know, God doesn't love you or whatever. And his love is unconditional. And this, this book, if nothing else, will be a constant reminder of that, that he, his love is unconditional and immovable and uh, nothing you can do can change that. And uh, so that's, that's what it uh, sort of came from for me is, is realizing his unconditional love for me as a, as a police officer. What role did your faith play when you were uh, serving with a badge? You know, uh, my faith for the first couple of years, um, I really wrestled with who God was. Even even growing up in a, in a Christian home, in a home of a pastor, uh, whenever I began to see these things, I was just, you know, God, how can you let these things happen if you love us? And uh, I really had to, I had to wrestle with that. I had to go through it. And whenever I sank my teeth in and said, I believe in you because I choose to believe, I began to grow in my faith. I began to grow in that walk with Christ. And uh, it helped me come through some very dark times, understanding that there's more to what we are dealing with here and now. Uh, when we shift our perspective and focus from the here and now to an eternal focus, then we understand the value of what we're doing today. Um, and it's, it's, you know, the things that we're dealing with today are temporary. They're going to go away. 
uh, and the real good stuff will come later. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it'll come later. And so we just have to be uh, patient and, and, and do what he's called us to do. And, and uh, that, I think that's really the biggest thing uh, yeah. is that it showed me uh, that, number one, I can, you know, as cliche as it may sound, I can do all things through Christ. And there's some really tough things out there. Remember this, if nothing else, that these are human beings wearing this badge, and they have fear. They have other emotions just like we do. And faith, when it comes to dealing with fear, faith is the antidote. It will eliminate that in the moment of of decision when they have to make that decision. And and who better to send to those dark places where there's evil and hatred and violence and people who are armed with the love of Jesus Christ. Mm. I should mention that Behind the Badge is filled with personal stories. You'll find relevant scriptures, practical prayers, and the devotions are short. They focus on themes like peace and integrity, strength, family, protection, divine direction, preparedness, service, and much more. And you'll also find uh, powerful blessings and declarations that will inspire and strengthen those who are the first to respond when there is danger. You pick up the phone, you call 911. These are the people who respond to those calls, and uh, and it could be a very challenging line of, uh, of work. Now, for listeners who are interested in not only acquiring a copy of Behind the Badge for themselves, but maybe want to have a cash available so that when they encounter someone in uniform, they might present it as a, a thank you and an encouragement for the work that they're doing. How can they find Behind the Badge? You know, it's probably easiest just to visit my website. It's theadamdavis.com, T-H-E, adamdavis.com. That's probably the easiest way. And there's uh, right there on the front page, you'll find all the different places where you can buy it. Um, there's, it's all over the place. I, I wouldn't even want to start listing. I'll leave somebody <laughs> out. So <laughs> just send you to the website. You can pick it up there. And, and then you can contact me through that. You know, I've been so blessed. Uh, there's so many people across this nation who are, are so generous and kind, and they're ordering them by the case to give away. Pastors, community leaders, uh, I'm seeing it create a sense of unity and healing. And, you know, I, I don't think there's anything better that I could do it with my life than to sow seeds of unity and healing in our country. And um, no matter how insignificant it may seem right now, I believe that it's going to make a difference in time. Mm, and yes. uh, I look forward to uh, to what's going to come from it. But I really appreciate you having me on and allowing me this opportunity to share. Well, thank you for making this resource available and giving us something that we can give to others that we care about and are concerned about. Thanks so much for talking yeah. with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Again, Adam Davis is the author of Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement, published by Broad Street Publishing. If you are supportive of law enforcement, this is a great encouragement. If you are skeptical of law enforcement, this is a great tool to help shape character. Um, If you are concerned about law enforcement, this is a great way to express that concern because it focuses on God's word. Let's see, we have news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jim Phillips, Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the Secretary of State announced the Trump administration's agenda after pulling out of the 2015 nuclear deal with the Islamist regime of Iran. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo earlier this week gave 
uh, a speech and address before the uh, Washington, D.C. office of the Heritage Foundation and made the uh, brazen announcement that uh, Iran's government has an ultimatum and its people an assurance. Uh, he laid out uh, for the administration one of the toughest um, set of, uh, without going into detail, set of sanctions uh, that he says Iran and in fact, the world has ever seen. So we'll talk more about him about that and what the likely response is going to be uh, to all of it. So we'll get into that with him at the bottom of this hour. Also, we'll tell you more about uh, some pastors who were on that flight, uh, that downed flight on Friday from Cuba. It included, we just learned, 20 Cuban pastors and their spouses. They were killed in that plane crash. We'll tell you more about them and what they've asked us to do in response. Well, the World Organization of Scout Mo- uh, of the Scout Movement promotes the use of condoms and alcohol for attendees in its health and safety guidelines for next year's 24th World Jamboree to be held at the Summit Bechtel Re- uh, Reserve in West Virginia. Now, when I first read the headline, Scout Event Promotes Promiscuous Behavior, I thought certainly I had misread the headline, so I was immediately interested in more about it. Well, the guidelines require that Host organizations, who in this case include the Scouts BSA, Boy Scouts of America, formerly Boy Scouts of America, um, ensures that condoms are readily and easily accessible for all participants and IST, which is an abbreviation for staff, at a number of locations on the site. Head of contingent must be informed in advance and made aware of their responsibility in communicating this policy to their participants, unit leaders, contingent staff, and IST uh, in uh, an appropriate way. I don't know what appropriate way there would be to make this announcement to the adults overseeing this event um, that involves Boy Scouts. Emphasis added to boy. Well, the guidelines also have exceptions, allowances, and instructions Uh, for the consumption of alcohol in confined areas at the 12-day camping event. Well, the announcement comes after the BSA recently changed its membership policy. They now allow girls to fully participate in local programs and changed its official name to remove the word boy to transform it into the new genderless Scouts USA. I mean, what could go wrong? You've got boys, you've got girls, alcohol and condoms. I mean... The 2019 World Jamboree will be hosted by three national scout organizations, Scouts Canada, Association de Scouts de Mexico, excuse my attempted accent, and the Scouts BSA. Well, the theme for the 24th Jamboree will be to unlock a new world. And promotional materials claim the event will be a celebration of cultural exchange, mutual understanding, peace, and friendship. More than 160 national scout organizations representing more than 200 nations and territories are expected to participate in this massive camping event, which based on recent membership uh, policy changes will now include girls as well as boys, adults, and scout leaders who are LGBT. Churches that are chartering Boy, uh, Boy Scout troops to the World Jamboree event should be outraged that uh, it's encouraging minors to participate in sexual conduct and consume alcohol. Well, that's a quote from Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council. These guidelines, which include condoms and alcohol, are completely irresponsible. I can't imagine any parent who would uh, would want to send their children to a campout uh, that promotes this kind of outrageous and dangerous behavior. Every church should consider partnering with Trail Life USA. We talked with the founder some time ago, which encourages Christian values and immediately disassociate with the Boy Scouts, according to Staver. Well, lots of uh, people already have a number of churches and religious organizations. The Mormon Church most recently announced that they were going to be separating from Boy Scouts of America, now under a new name. 
um, as well. Now, whether the alcohol in condoms is reserved for the adults, it seems to me that one ought to be able to abstain for a period of time when you're overseeing the welfare of young people. But apparently I would be wrong. Jarrett Stepman, writing for The Daily Signal, um, uh, makes the point that this is... um, uh, this is an outrageous, uh, actually it wasn't Stepman, I'm looking at a, a Bob uh, Unra is the one who wrote this, uh, uh, that this world jamboree uh, and the broadening of what's accepted uh, seems entirely inappropriate. He writes that the Boy Scouts have decided to accept people who identify as gay and lesbian among their ranks, and girls are welcome now, too, into the iconic organization, which has renamed itself Scouts BSA. So what next? A mandate that condoms be made available to all participants, in quotes, of its global gathering. It's among the uh, demands that the World Scout Committee for uh, any host country of a World Scout Jamboree. That would include the 24th World Scout Jamboree scheduled for July 21st through August 1st, 2019 in West Virginia. The Scouts say for the first time a World Jamboree will be hosted by three national scout organizations, which I've already mentioned. These three distinct cultures will join together to host the World Scouting Committee community in a celebration of cultural exchange, mutual understanding, peace and friendship with condoms. Commenting on the condom policy, John Stimberger, president of the Florida Family Policy Council, wrote that it's not clear how far down the rabbit hole the Boy Scouts will continue to fall. With the addition of condoms and alcohol, the World Jamboree is starting to sound more like the, a 1960s Woodstock festival rather than a campout that parents would want to send their children to. Well, Stimberger also serves as chairman of the board of Trail Life USA, an alternative to the Scouts that continues to abide by A Boy Scout motto, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake and morally straight. Well, Stimberger said the recent developments should be deeply disturbing to the churches that are chartering Boy Scout troops. These policies present a clear youth protection problem that the BSA absolutely refuses to recognize. The fact that they are requiring that condoms be readily accessible and are communicating this to everyone, including youth participants, shows that the BSA is both anticipating and facilitating sexual conduct between minors at the event. These policies are both outrageous and completely irresponsible. Well, the change to allow girls into the BSA provoked a blistering response from the National Girl Scouts of America organization last year when they issued the following statement. The Boy Scouts house is on fire. Instead of addressing systematic issues of continuing sexual assault, financial mismanagement and deficient programming, BSA's senior management wants to add an accelerant to the house uh, to the house fire rather by recruiting girls. The council said not particularly a uh, popular move at this point. Now, I know that there are Boy Scout troops all across the country that are not involved in any of the more controversial aspects of the national organization. And it is uh, rather sad to see uh, what was um, considered um, an organization to be admired and families encourage their young boys and girls to engage in these kinds of clubs for a variety of reasons. Uh, now having to question whether or not it's appropriate to include them uh, in the work. So it's a it's a sad thing. Well, speaking of Jarrett Stepman, I misquoted earlier, he did write for the Daily Signal, pointing out that only in America's schools could partying like it's 1776 be considered offensive, but offensive it apparently is at this rate. Saying good morning might become offensive at some point in the not-too-distant future. Well, let me tell you the story. The principal of Cherry Hill High School East in New Jersey issued an apology after some students deemed the public school prom thing, party like it's 1776, to be insensitive. 
I'm writing to apologize for the hurt feelings this reference caused uh, for members of our school family. Dennis Perry wrote Friday in a letter, according to the Cherry Hill Courier Post. I especially apologize to our African-American students who I have let down by not initially recognizing the inappropriateness of this wording. He said, well, the principal, by the way, I'm an African-American woman. The principal announced that tickets would not be needed to get into the prom. A name would suffice. The tickets would be redesigned because seeing them and holding them apparently was just too much. And safeguards would be laid down in the future to make sure nobody is offended by anything the school does. In other words, they're going to adjourn and never come together ever again, because when you get two or three people together, somebody's going to be offended by something. How do you handle an offense? That might be a lesson worth teaching. What's especially ridiculous about this whole situation is that the school is hosting the prom at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Now, that's got to be offensive to somebody, a building that pays tribute to the nation's founding documents. Every American of any background has a good reason to celebrate 1776. Now, I recognize the place that my forebears were at that time, but I also appreciate the hard uh, work that they did, uh, the fight that they fought to bring me to this pass. Well, while it's true that the promise of freedom imbued in the Declaration of Independence wasn't extended to everyone initially, it nevertheless set the stage for the advancement of liberty in the future. And we demanded that that be extended to all peoples, including African-Americans. Nobody has better explained this than Frederick Douglass, a black man who'd been a slave before freeing himself and becoming one of America's leading abolitionists. Douglass wrote about what 1776 and the 4th of July meant to him in his 1852 speech, The Meaning of July 4th for the Negro. Slavery at that time was still practiced widely across the country, but as much as Douglas loathed this institution, having once been a slave under it, and railed against the hypocrisy of rallying around a creed that says all men are created equal while leaving other Americans in oppressive bondage, he did not turn on the ideal of 1776 or the focus unleashed at that moment. Far from it. The 4th of July is the first great fact in our nation's history, the very ring bold in the chain of your yet undeveloped destiny, he said to his audience, adding pride and patriotism, not less than gratitude, prompt you to celebrate and to hold it in perpetual remembrance. I have said that the Declaration of Independence is the ring bolt to the chain of our nation's destiny. So indeed, I regard it. The principles contained in that instrument are saving principles. Stand by those principles. Be true to them on all occasions, in all places, against all foes, and at whatever cost. He recognized that even though they didn't live up to the creed that they uh, esteemed, that it was, in fact, the thing that would ultimately free his people, and they, too, would be able to enjoy at some point in the future for which he fought uh, the freedoms that it extolled. Douglas then turned and criticized Americans for not making the universal truths of the founding documents truly universal, and he reminded them that it was hard to celebrate liberty when so many remained rather in abject slavery. Importantly, he didn't tell his audience to reject the American founding, to reject Independence Day. He told all of them to embrace it, to create a new birth of freedom, as Abraham Lincoln rather would later call it in the Gettysburg Address. An American that no longer can celebrate to recognize this triumph is hardly a nation at all. It is an America where the most fundamental chords of what we were, we've been, um, uh, what we are, have been severed, and our future is made gloomy by a lack of any discernible connective tissue besides the old fallbacks of tribe. This would be a terrible fate for our experiment in liberty, now over two centuries old, and um, it goes on from there. I'll leave it at that, but. Um, 
Again, only in America would a school consider partying like it's 1776 be so offensive and not see it as a teachable moment to talk about the reality of 1776 and the years that followed the hard fought battles that resulted ultimately in that freedom being extended uh, much more broadly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. Also coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Jim Phillips, Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs. We're going to talk about Secretary of State Mike Pompeo giving Iran's government an ultimatum and its people an assurance on Monday, laying out the Trump administration's agenda after pulling out of the 2015 nuclear deal with the Islamist regime. That's coming up in our next segment. Well, the cultural shift against uh, free speech is moving at a swifter pace than I think most of us anticipated. At first, Twitter seemed like a pretty good idea, quickly and concisely communicating our thoughts with just a few keystrokes rather than babbling on and on, you know, like I do every day. Still, something didn't seem quite right about the 140-character limitation, even when it was doubled to 280 characters last year. Somehow, it, somehow rather, it still seemed a restriction on how, how we speak. But that... Um, That was just the beginning. Well, this simple social media platform is now going far beyond limiting our character count to controlling what we think and how we interact with our fellow citizens. One of the core problems created by social media behemoths like Twitter and Facebook isn't that their policies are posing any serious legal threat to the First Amendment. David French wrote at National Review, and I'm quoting, the law of free speech uh, have uh, has mainly improved Americans might have. Uh, More legal defenses against government censorship now than ever before. If the government moves against your speech based on your viewpoint and you fight back, you're likely to win. But social media platforms can bypass the Constitution altogether by creating a paradigm shift in the way current and future generations understand the important role free speech plays in our society. Uh, Mr. French adds, the culture of free speech has Uh, has decayed. Individuals and organizations are far more sensitive and far less tolerant of dissent than they were even in the recent past, end quote. Well, Twitter thinks it has the answer, but its users won't be freer to speak their minds. Well, in 2016, Twitter launched an Orwellian Trust and Safety Council made up of more than 40 organizations, some of which have a history of suppressing free speech, having thus created a council with representation from a very limited range of ideological perspectives. The company tipped its authoritarian hand. Twitter explained that in order for users to express themselves freely and safely on Twitter, we must provide more tools and policies. Well, read restrictions. Somehow we've managed to build a thriving civilization without having our social interactions with others flagged by an intrusive authority. But now Twitter thinks we need just that. After all, society itself has embedded cultural norms and practices over time to ensure civil discourse. But these cultural norms are under, well, actually threatened Uh, by the advent of technology and the pervasive use of social media by millions of Americans. Some some of uh, Twitter's changes seem benign on the surface. For example, the last push by CEO Jack Dorsey purports to focus on people who are routinely blocked by other users, those who send tweets to accounts they don't follow, and those who launch multiple accounts from a single IP address. But how far will this go? Dorsey himself said that this is a step, but we can see this go quite far. Indeed, it may well go too far. 
are. This week, The Verge posted an internal Google video imagining a future in which social media is used not merely to referee online interactions, but to socially engineer our entire society. If that doesn't send chills down your spine, then maybe we're already closer to that world than we realize. Well, for now, Twitter asserts that it's merely trying to rid the platform of spammy behavior spammy behavior. But earlier this year, James O'Keefe, Project Veritas revealed via Daily Wire, Twitter employees admitting that they uh, they shadow ban right-leaning accounts, which essentially bans them from the platform without letting them know uh, that they've been banned while allowing left-leaning accounts to slip through without the same scrutiny. Now, that wouldn't be so bad if Twitter were merely trying to filter out inappropriate or abusive online behavior without regard to ideology. But while middle-of-the-road conservative groups and individuals are being shadow banned, Twitter has no qualms about allowing groups like Hamas to freely express their hatred and their calls for violence simply because Hamas is a democratically elected government entity that claims to be part of the Middle East peace process. I'll pause to give you a moment to laugh. Remember, Hamas was deemed a foreign terrorist organization by none other, uh, none other rather than President Bill Clinton in 97, and it orchestrated the recent violence on the Gaza border that led to the deaths of dozens of soldiers. And by the way, it's also recognized by the United States and the European Union as a terrorist organization. The Founding Fathers wisely protected us against government's intrusion into what we say and how we say it. Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms, however, are subversively changing the very way Americans think about communication. And these changes are also occurring in academia and in the workplace, where the anti-free speech culture being fostered online is also part of the broader culture. The result is that we've become conditioned by social media to accept environments in which simply sharing an opinion can lead to being flagged, suppressed, or outright banned from a social community. This is having a ripple effect on the way Americans interact with one another away from social media. Of course, uh, no one is suggesting that the government take action against private companies. As Reasons Robbie Sove writes, Twitter is a private company. It is free to make whatever speech rules it wants. Forcing Twitter to permit more kinds of speech would not actually be pro-free speech. In fact, it would violate the First Amendment. And that's why one of the greatest challenges our society will face in the 21st century is maintaining a culture of free speech when so many of us discuss politics and social issues, not in the public square where everyone can speak freely, at least some of the time, but in the private-run realms of the Internet. The time has come for Americans to speak up before it's too late. This is no longer a discussion about cleaning up social media, but about preserving a civilization whose great strength has always derived, uh, been derived rather from its First Amendment. But again, that is definitely changing. Well, a judge in California has issued a final judgment on the case of a Christian baker who refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Kern County Superior Court Judge David Lampe, he issued a final ruling Uh, upholding his earlier decision to allow Tasty's bakery owner, Kathy Miller, to continue rejecting orders for same-sex wedding cakes. Um, Lampe said in his ruling, the state is not petitioning the court to order defendants to sell a cake. The state asks this court to compel Miller to use her talents to design and create a cake. She has not yet conceived with the knowledge that her work will be displayed in celebration of a marital union her religion forbids. For this uh, court to force such compliance would do violence to the essentials of free speech guaranteed under the First Amendment, he continued. The case against Miller stems from a complaint filed by a, a couple who accused the baker of violating a law that prohibits businesses from refusing service to customers on the basis of sexual orientation. 
Well, the uh, California Department of Fair Employment and Housing filed the lawsuit against Miller and her bakery. Well, Miller, who is uh, represented by the Freedom of Conscience Defense Fund, or FCDF, in court, has contended that she cannot bake a same-sex wedding cake because it would violate her conscience. Well, her attorney had, um, or rather the judge, had ruled in February that Miller's First Amendment rights outweigh the state's anti-discrimination law. And he argued that Miller's rights were protected under artistic expression, but he cautioned that businesses are still now allowed to discriminate, not uh, now rather to discriminate in any other uh, circumstance. Well, the judge pointed to the example of finished products on display as opposed to those that need to be created after an order from a customer. He noted that business owners who put their products Products up for public display are not allowed to refuse to sell on the basis of race, gender, religion, or gender identity. The president of the Freedom Organization and chief legal counsel um, hailed the decision, saying, We are pleased the judge recognized that the First Amendment protects Kathy's freedom of speech. The legal firm noted that Miller may still face the possibility of losing her bakery, as the government can still appeal. Uh, the judge's decision in the state court of appeals. And just a reminder that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, heard arguments in a similar case, and their decision is expected sometime in uh, June, more likely mid to late June, uh, on a uh, case involving the same use of artistic expression. Coming up, we're going to talk with Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs. We'll talk about the Secretary of State's uh, pronouncement that was made in Washington, D.C., at, uh, in fact, a heritage event in which he uh, warned uh, the Iranian government and gave assurances to the Iranian people. That and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo gave Iran's government an ultimatum and its people an assurance on Monday in laying out the Trump administration's agenda after pulling out of the 2015 nuclear deal with the Islamic regime. Well, the sting of sanctions will be painful if the regime does not change its course from the unacceptable and unproductive path it has chosen uh, to the one that rejoins the League of Nations, he said, um, shy of a month on his uh, on his new job, he warned Iran's leaders that the strongest sanctions in history are coming. Well, what are those sanctions and what might we expect and what kind of response uh, might we expect under these new circumstances with a new sheriff in town? Jim Phillips joins us. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me, Georgine. Well, this is quite a threat. Uh, referring to the strongest sanctions in history. First of all, do we know uh, with any precision what he's referring to? And uh, how is this likely to play in Iran, despite their bravado, which I'm sure they've um, already uh, shown some of? Well, the administration has indicated that it's going to be a full-court press, and they're going to go reactivate the former sanctions at the highest level. But I think Secretary of State Pompeo is leaving a little to the imagination uh, without, you know, exactly explicitly stating what kind of new sanctions may be in store, because I think the administration wants to uh, uh, kind of keep these under wraps and and kind of spring them on Mm -hmm. Iran in the future. One of the things I have to say I appreciate about Donald Trump is he doesn't always show his hand 
which I think the uh, previous administration aired uh, on some occasions. He uh, went on to say that after the sanctions come in force, it will be battling, referring to Iran, to keep its economy alive. Is it uh, is it possible that sanctions of a severe nature is likely to have this kind of an impact on Iran? I, I realize I'm asking you to do a little guesswork, but can sanctions alone, particularly in this environment where you have European nations uh, that are still in the so-called Iran deal, uh, hanging on for dear life. Is it likely that sanctions, severe sanctions, as they're described here, could have that kind of an impact on Iran? I doubt that sanctions alone will force Iran to give up all the things that Secretary Pompeo was asking Iran to give up. Uh, but uh, I think sanctions will put uh, the regime under tremendous pressure and uh, unlike the last uh, time a nuclear deal or a foreign policy deal with Iran was negotiated, uh, this time the re- regime has been shown to be vulnerable because last winter there were uh, a huge number of anti-regime demonstrations that started out uh, expressing discontent over economic uh, trends, but ended up being extremely critical of the regime itself, uh, and and actually these uh, these really their riots rather than demonstrations, and they continue inside Iran. Uh, and just this week, there was a, a demonstration in which uh, the the demonstrators chanted, "The enemy is not the U.S. The enemy is here." Hmm. Mm. Well, I do appreciate that um, Secretary Pompeo put it in both a narrow and a broad context in which he he pointed to the fact that uh, Iran has been squandering precious wealth on fights abroad and making the point that the United States is going to work to deter uh, Iran's uh, aggression uh, and to try to stop the regime's funding of terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and mischief in areas like in uh, in Syria. Yeah. Uh, if nothing else, the sanctions will reduce the amount of cash Iran mm-hmm. has to spread around on its surrogate network, Hezbollah, Hamas. And it's also spending billions of dollars to prop up the Assad regime in Syria. And that may be uh, considered very expensive uh, once the, the sanctions hit full force. One of the points that he made was that uh, President Obama and his Secretary of State, John Kerry, had argued back in 2015 that the nuclear deal was going to stabilize the Middle East, at least for a season, for 10 years. Um, But that that has not happened, that Iran has continued to be the world's largest sponsor of terror. Uh, Again, making the case that Iran must be contained and a combination of sanctions, encouraging the people there uh, to continue to raise their voices and oppose the regime, uh, would make it such a, a difficult environment for them to continue that they're going to break at some point. Yeah, and I think that part of the administration's strategy is to force the regime to make a hard choice on a trade-off. If it wants to stay in power, uh, then it must meet at least some of the demands of its own people because it, we know it's increasingly unpopular. And its own people have demonstrated against the adventurous foreign policy and the huge subsidies that the regime lavishes on Hezbollah and Hamas and, and other terrorist groups. Uh, so at least this will uh, take away a lot of the regime's resources 
and make them uh, look a little bit differently on whether they have the luxury to spend billions of dollars on uh, this terror, these terrorist groups or its nuclear program or its missile program. I mean, they'll all be uh, kind of ripe for a trade-off. Now, I appreciated that he linked the, the Iranian mischief abroad as evidence that um, their their overall security picture you, they cannot separate the uh, the mischief abroad from the the uh, uh, Iranian um, nuclear deal because it's evidence that they are continuing on the same course they were on prior to that negotiated deal in 2015. No, that's right, and I think the Obama administration really um, misunderstood the. Uh, Iran's ideological framework, because under that ideology, uh, Iran is allowed to lie to foreign powers uh, anyway, but uh, it feels no uh, sense of permanent commitment with regard to its foreign policy uh, promises. And I think this uh, Trump administration is not going to just take Iran at its word. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there were some specific demands that he mentioned. Give unqualified access to international nuclear inspectors, stop uranium enrichment, end proliferation of ballistic missiles, halt future launching of nuclear-capable missiles, release U.S. citizens and citizens of allies that Iran holds captive, end support of terrorist groups, stop threatening neighbors such as Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. What we are pursuing, he went on to say, was the global consensus before the Iranian deal or the GCP deal that the United States has now stepped away from. And I think that's a very important point, because there are many voices in Europe that uh, complain that the Trump administration has made a radical departure from U.S. foreign policy. But in reality, it was the Obama administration Mm -hmm. that broke with more than five decades of nonproliferation policy by allowing Iran to keep uranium enrichment that it uh, covert facilities that it had built in violation of its nonproliferation commitments. And the Obama administration gave Iran uh, a better deal on uranium enrichment than it gave to many of our allies, including South Korea, Taiwan, and the United Arab Emirates, and even a better deal than the Ford administration gave the Shah of Iran. Incredible. Uh, when he was an ally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of the other things that um, the secretary uh, emphasized what, was that the want, administration rather wants broad support, that he wants to include Congress as a partner in this process. We want our efforts to have broad support with the American people and uh, to endure beyond the Trump administration and a treaty as a preferred way to go, which is what the Iranian deal failed to become under the previous administration. That's right. Uh, uh, Secretary of State Kerry knew that he could not win uh, Senate approval for the agreement he was negotiating. So from the beginning, it was structured as an executive agreement and and not a treaty. And for that reason, uh, it was very easy for the Trump administration to just undo that uh, agreement uh, because Congress had not, uh, you know, weighed in and ratified the treaty. Uh, So by promising uh, that it, any agreement will be in the form of a treaty, it guarantees a widespread congressional support because without that, uh, it probably uh, wouldn't be uh, 
approved by the Senate. Just one final question. There was a presentation made exposing uh, what was suggested to be Iran's ongoing nuclear program by the Israeli uh, uh, president. And uh, it was a rather brazen um, presentation with images to confirm what was being said. Was that taken seriously at all by U.S. allies who are signatories on this uh, Iran deal? I think, unfortunately, uh, most of them uh, uh, refused to really take it seriously. And some claimed there was nothing new there, although I think there was uh, substantial new information in terms of the numbers of ICBM that uh, Iran wanted to be armed with nuclear warheads. There was new information on their their testing plans uh, and the actual documents, just the fact that they retained them indicate that they saw a use for them in the future. So although the White House took those revelations very seriously, unfortunately, many of our European allies didn't. Well, we'll just uh, continue to wait and see what happens next. The uh, the Secretary of State has made very clear what the position of the Trump administration is, what the policy of the United States government is going to be moving forward. There's been a lot of saber rattling, rattling from the Iranian uh, regime up to this point. Uh, but if the kinds of pressures that were described are brought to bear, it seems to me it's going to be very difficult for Iran to continue. That's right. Uh, Even if they refuse to renegotiate the nuclear deal, they're going to have a lot less uh, money to uh, uh, make trouble with. Well, let's uh, certainly hope so. Jim Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Again, Jim Phillips is a research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. And by the way, the Secretary of State was speaking at the Heritage Foundation, their Washington, D.C. facility uh, earlier this week. Up next, we're going to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Many of us heard about the uh, airline. Uh, airliner that crashed in Cuba a, a day or so ago, but we didn't know that on board that uh, that flight were 20 Cuban pastors and their spouses who were killed in that plane crash. According to Nazarene officials, they say God is still in control after the regional leaders died on their way home from a Havana retreat. While a group of Cuba church, uh, Cuban church leaders died in a plane crash on Friday on the way home from a denominational retreat in Havana, the 10 married couples, several of them co-pastors from uh, East Cuba, had spent three days at a Nazarene seminary in the island's capital. They sang and prayed together on the bus back to San Marty International Airport to catch their return flight. Cuba Church of the Nazarene President um, uh, Leonel Lopez told the Nazarene Communications Network News. Uh, but they never made it back home. The 20 pastors were among more than 100 people that were killed when their Boeing 737 airplane crashed shortly after taking off from Havana around noon on Friday. Just three survivors remain. It's the deadliest aviation accident in Cuba in three decades. In this moment of anguish and pain, we ask for your prayers and uh, help to be able to get through the situation together, uh, President Leonel Lopez said in a statement. Among the casualties were the Nazarene Missions International District President and District Office Secretary and Treasurer. The Nazarene victims leave behind eight children between the ages of 7 and 16, and several of the couples also had adult children. This has been a difficult time for the Church of the Nazarene, but in these times of difficulties and adversities, we know that God is still in control. Carlos Sanchez 
Rains, who's the regional director for the Church of the Nazarene, uh, said which um, uh, this particular uh, group dates back more than 70 years in Cuba, which is saying something under the uh, communist regime as it existed over those 70 years. Well, the cause of the crash is still unknown. And although the plane was nearly 40 years old and reportedly in poor condition, it had been rented from a Mexican owner and flown by the Mexican airline Global Air. We pray to the Lord to fortify the hearts of the families for our fallen brothers and sisters, and as well, the entire Church of the Nazarene, not only in Cuba, but in every place that it's found. Again, the Evangelical Latina um, organization said in a statement, among the country's growing evangelical population, more than 9,000 Cubans belong to about 100 Nazarene congregations on the island. Our Council of Churches joins the greater Cuban community in grieving today the profound loss of human life and asks for prayers for the three survivors that are in critical condition and have been hospitalized. Uh, This is a statement that was also released. And while church and state have uh, come in conflict in Cuba, Christianity there has been undergoing an improbable and impressive revival. Not surprising, uh, given the fact that where there is repression, the church tends to grow. Christianity Today has reported, at the time of Fidel Castro's death in 2016, the Protestant population has grown uh, to more than 5%. And while that may seem like a small number, when you consider where it had been, that is an impressive Um, growth spurt for the church in Cuba. But I did want to mention it because I know we care about the body of Christ. Wherever it exists, we are linked together by our common heritage in Christ. We are family. We are one, as the scriptures describe it, describe us. And so I wanted to encourage all of us to be in prayer for that, that, um, a branch of the uh, the family, uh, the church is uh, certainly struggling uh, with grief uh, during this very difficult season. But as was mentioned in the statements that were made publicly, they recognize that God is still on the throne. He is sovereign and that he still has his hand on the nation of Cuba and on the church there as well. Wanted to uh, to mention that. Well, tomorrow on the program, we are delighted that we are going to be joined in studio by our friends at Food for the Poor. And that gives us an opportunity to provide what uh, children in the Caribbean and Latin American areas uh, need the most. They suffer daily from lack of food and clean water. I have been there. I know that others here have been there. In fact, Crystal, who is uh, the host of the afternoon show on our sister station, The Fish, she just returned from there. And we're going to Uh, talk with her about her observations. My guess is things haven't changed much since I was there. And I can tell you, uh, once the plane touches down uh, and you have the opportunity to walk through the community, it's very obvious that uh, these Latin American and Caribbean uh, children lack food and clean water. But the good news is you and I can change that. Every child deserves the basics of life, food and water. And so we're asking you to consider making a a monthly donation to help support these kids so that they can thrive. And this is just another effort here on KPDQ to provide opportunities for all of us to take a glimpse. Uh, Sometimes we'll focus on a very small part of the world um, to give you an insight into how others struggle. While you and I are in relative comfort, we have a safety net here. And while uh, we may struggle economically, we may... um, have limited finances, we are in an environment in which there is a safety net that provides a modicum of security. That's not the case in many places around the world. So when Food for the Poor joins us, we're going to be talking about how we can help provide, as part of the body of Christ, a safety net 
um, underneath and undergirding these children and families who desperately need our help. So tomorrow on the program, we want to make sure that you are prepared to give generously because the good news is we can make a real difference. So I hope you'll plan to join us. And if you know somebody who may you know, fail to listen, give them a call and say you need to listen tomorrow because we're going to focus on a part of the world that needs our help. So will you make a commitment to join us and prayerfully consider even now how you might uh, give generously to help uh, children thrive, not just survive, but thrive, because just like us, they need food and clean water. And uh, we're going to provide that for them throughout the day, not just on the Georgine Rice Show, but throughout the day here on KPDQ. You're going to hear a little bit uh, about uh, those needs. And I would encourage you to listen carefully because you're going to hear their stories. You're going to hear from those who have been there from this country to observe the degree of poverty they live in. Uh, And I'm telling you, when you're there, you see it firsthand. You hold these children, you talk with them, you see them um, uh, desperately looking for nourishment. Um, it touches you in a way that it's, it's difficult to describe, but we're going to do our best to paint a picture for you tomorrow so that we can all, uh, with empathy and compassion, give uh, as generously as possible. So that's coming up tomorrow on the program. And then on Thursday, we're going to talk with Leslie Field, uh, The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. So hope you can uh, plan to join us for that once again, we started the program acknowledging that today is the birthday of James Blend. What are you now? 63, 64, James? What's, uh, what's your actual age? 70, 75? 43. 43. I have a vague recollection of 40 something. I'm not sure it was 43, but it's faded now and it's more difficult to. Uh, to remember, but I do have a vague recollection. Once again, happy birthday and congratulations on completing another successful year of life as a husband and a father, as a uh, producer, a concert promoter, a stand-up comedian, and all the things that you are. I still can't get over the stand-up comedian thing, but... I've noticed, I've noticed. Yeah, so anyway, we'll move on from there. Anyway, um, happy birthday. Any big plans for the evening? Just a nice quiet dinner with the family. So what time should I be there? Eight. What time's the dinner? Six. (laughs) Wow, I love you too, James. Anyway, happy birthday, old friend. Well, not so old. I'm the old one, but... I was all 20 when I met you, so you know. I know. I was thinking about that earlier today. Just this uh, fresh-faced young man, yet unmarried. And I watched you. I've watched you grow up. And grow out. Yeah. Still have a lot to uh, lot to learn, but we're working on it. I want to thank James Blinn for engineering and producing today's program. Remind you that tomorrow we have food for the four in studio. Join us if you can. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.